Farm Focus, a podcast by the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau. I'm William Whistler. This week on the podcast, I spoke to environmental specialist Grant Gullivan about the different things going on in the environmental world that Pennsylvania Farm Bureau members should keep an eye on. Joined this week on the Farm Focus uh, podcast by Grant. Uh, Grant, you're going to give an opportunity here to talk about your environmental updates for, for these last couple weeks. Uh, Obviously, the big thing these last couple days has been the positive test of avian influenza out in the western part of the state. Uh, if you want to speak to that a little bit and maybe some of the challenges that may be coming with migration season that, you know, coming underway. Sure. Thanks, Will. No, good to, good to be with you again on, on all of this. We're seeing a continued uptick in avian influenza activity across the country. There have been quarantines put in place in places like Ohio, Minnesota, South Dakota, and of course that's only going to increase as we get further into the fall. The virus was suppressed a great deal in the summer by the higher temperatures, but now as as migratory activity is picking up and uh, one of the main uh, drivers of the, the outbreaks that we've had in the areas of Pennsylvania to date where there have been quarantines imposed have been primarily from wild birds flying through and, and also into uh, backyard flocks, such as the one that uh, we had uh, encountered this past week in Washington County, uh, Mount Pleasant Township, uh, backyard flock of about 1,500 mixed birds, had a, a non-negative uh, test result for one of the H5 strains of virus. Now, H5 isn't a highly pathogenic strain like the ones that we've been so concerned with dealing with, but it has the ability to mutate into a high-pass strain. So that's why the, the level of caution right now. So the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture has come in and there's been a control area set up, quarantine zone in the immediate area around the premises, and then uh, larger control zones fanning out. Also to, uh, it's not, fortunately in this case, this is not an area where there's a lot of commercial uh, poultry production, such as what we had earlier in the summer whenever we had the, the outbreaks, especially in Lancaster County, where we had, uh, and I think we've had a total of over 4.2 million birds to date that have had to be eliminated because of the virus to suppress that spread. But again, the lessons that we've learned and that the Pennsylvania Diagnostic and Laboratory System through the Department of Agriculture and their work at the new Bolton Center at the University of Pennsylvania, at Penn State, and here in Harrisburg at the PDA labs, that uh, there's, there's a lot of good people both within government and industry that are taking care to make sure that we're as prepared as we can possibly be. Um, the uh, the recent, well, it's not recently passed anymore, but the current year state budget now is $6 million available for additional testing in response to, uh, to high path avian influenza and other uh, uh, livestock or other or poultry disease outbreaks so that we can be prepared as we get into this uh, migration season. And then, of course, another one in the spring where we're going to face the same challenges. But we would just urge, again, our members and all, uh, all, all producers across the country, and regardless of what, in, what, you know, what your commodity may be that you're producing on your, on your land, whether it's livestock or whether it's crops, but the importance of good biosecurity cannot be overstressed. We, we've urged our, our membership to do that, and we believe that you know, people have taken that to heart. I think that's one of the reasons why our responses have been as successful as they've been. But 
eternal vigilance because you know going into the winter season, especially given all the other pressures that the farm economy is facing, certainly animal health is going to be uh, going to be paramount in making sure that we can get the commodities to market that uh, consumers are going to need this winter. And that was one thing with uh, High Path that seemed to be kind of kind of uh, you know a better trend the last couple months where it kind of. I don't want to say died down because obviously it never went away, but right. it had kind of slowed a little bit. So how do you think, uh, or I guess how important is it for people to, first of all, remain vigilant on this and also to just be aware of how migration may affect them? Right. I mean, typically, I mean, again, as, as I've mentioned, typically when we get higher temperatures, it tends to suppress the spread of viruses like the HPAI, but now again, as, as we're, we've got the migratory movement and of course the, the cooler temperatures, there's more, more opportunity for that to spread. But again, I think that the experience that we've had, I mean, the, the first really, really negative outbreak we had was, you know, three, four decades ago. I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I believe back in the mid-1980s, and that was one of the impetuses for creating the state's Animal Health and Diagnostic Commission so that we could have a mechanism in place to be able to respond to situations like the HPAI outbreak. And with Pennsylvania's farm economy being so important to the overall economy of the state, certainly those challenges are important. But again, we always stress that you know we want healthy animals, we want healthy soils, healthy air and water because we live on those lands ourselves as farmers. Our, it's, the land is our legacy, and you know it does not doesn't help anyone ourselves most of all, but the public in general that depends on us for f- food and fuel and fiber to not do all that we can to make sure we have robust biosecurity and also you know, in terms of other environmental and regulatory management. And you alluded to it a little bit before, but just uh, just that importance of you know regardless of commodity having a good biosecurity plan in place just. You know how vital is that? Yeah, I mean we've seen you know how how quickly you know an entire segment of the economy can be devastated in the past. Things like you know African swine fever, of course the high path avian influenza, other diseases though that become that become endemic to certain animal populations. And of course as as we're going forward here, we've already seen you know issues with supply, both in terms of quantity and yield and also being just being able to get product to market in the first place. So those things are all exacerbated if we're in a situation where our biosecurity is below the level where it needs to be. Now, I know you've had an opportunity to do some uh, unique things this week, uh, part of that being the 4R Alliance event. Uh, if you wanted to you know, explain what that was and uh, tell people about just the importance of that with, uh, with ACAP. Sure, I mean, one of the things that, that we have tried to do and again, get out to our membership is um, information about innovative technologies and also soliciting ideas for projects that can be done so that we can get more research on how we can best apply nutrients to crops, keep those nutrients on the land, and then be able to increase yields while at the same time providing environmental benefits. And the Pennsylvania 4R Alliance is a group of of industry folks, but then also industry folks, conservationists, um, planners, uh, technical people, that do lots and lots of that work on the land. I mean, four R's. You know, we're trying to get the uh, we're trying to get nutrients applied in the right place at the right time at the right rate, and of course, have the right nutrient. So, therefore, you know, therefore, our focus in you know again trying to educate 
you know, policymakers, and that was the point of this uh, 4R Nutrient Stewardship Day that was held in Hershey this past week. A couple of uh, research projects going on at the Milton Hershey School Farm with corn and working with nutrients that can, again, help improve yield and also at the same time be able to, uh, to help with the environmental quality of those lands. And it, it becomes something that is more sustainable, something that helps us in, a, in situations where, again, we're challenged by the regulations that we currently face in terms of you know, being able to keep you know, what we can do with the, getting nutrients onto the land and so forth. You know, any, any type of additional practice that is beneficial is going to be helpful for us. Has that been something that uh, has seen a lot of uh, progress the last couple, couple you know, years or so? It's been a it's been a dedicated effort for over you know, the past I would say you know four to five years of working toward being able to draw more people into the effort and then also bring in those projects. But you know several different consulting firms that do a really good job and their their personnel were able to to go through and explain you know the process that it's taken to get to the point where some of these technologies now can be deployed in the field. Gotcha. And those are uh, obviously some very important things and uh, could definitely make a difference for farmers. So something yeah. that would a lot of people would want to keep an eye on. And, and you, mentioned, you mentioned the ACAP funding as well. The, that's going to be extremely important because we have this additional funding that was approved in this year's state budget for conservation projects all around the state. And so, you know, with you know, $150 plus million dollars out of that $220 million that will go directly for projects, I mean, it's, it's important for us to seek out those opportunities, look in areas of the state where there are challenges where innovation is taking place, support those, and try to bring those to fruition. Yeah, and I know you've worked a lot on uh, regulatory revisions that uh, the DEP has proposed uh, in recent weeks. Uh, if you want to talk a little bit about that in relation to uh, CAFOs and uh, nutrient management. No, sure. I mean, we've... Right now, um, the, the, the PAG-12 permit, which is the, the permit that covers uh, concentrated animal feeding operations, runs on a five-year cycle, uh, was last revised. Act, there was an interim revision in 2020 because there were, there were some changes that needed to be made before the permit expired, but um, it will, uh, the new permit will go into effect April 1st of 2023. And so DEP had reached out to a number of stakeholders through its Agricultural Advisory Board for preliminary comments on their pre-draft of the new PAG-12. So we'll be submitting those comments actually today as we're, as we're speaking. And beginning October 1st, the permit will be published in the Pennsylvania Bulletin. That is the plan currently, and there'll be a minimum of a 30-day comment period. But again, DEP's timeline is to get that turned around so that farmers can be applying for those. Those CAFO permittees can get those notices in to get their permits renewed, and so that people that may be starting a new CAFO also are aware of what those are. And again, that's something where we'll be reaching out again to our members who are CAFOs, getting their input on this. And, you know, we've worked very closely internally already with, with some of our uh, our top folks, at, our Vice President, Mr. Chris Hoffman, of course, is, uh, is a, a fairly substantial CAFO, uh, and uh, worked with him closely on, on getting these preliminary comments in. And we'll be looking for additional uh, input because the more voices that we have with the unified message on, on any regulatory issue, 
that's that's what's going to be successful for us. And also, uh, at the same time, a longer regulatory process is now underway through the State Conservation Commission, looking at the state's regulations dealing with uh, nutrient management, manure management, manure brokers, and haulers. So that's just getting underway now, but again, that's something where we're looking for member input to the extent that folks want to give us the benefit of their experience as those regulations are revised. But we want to try to shape these in a direction that are going to be more workable for farmers so that we can do the good conservation that we've always done, but at the same time have the technical and other support in place to get that accomplished and make sure that the regulations we're operating under are feasible, workable, and things that are not going to provide for you know, a tremendous amount of additional burden. because. You know, resources are scarce, as we know, and every bit of resource that goes into regulatory compliance can't be used to get the crop or, uh, or commodity to market. Yeah, and that's just, you know, that's just it. That's the big thing about uh, farming is, you know, farmers want to take care of their land. They want to be involved in conservation practices because, you know, the land is their, uh, the land is how they make their money, and it's what they do. I mean, it's a really important thing there, and the not having that funding or not having the ability to be able to afford to do the conservation practices has always been the challenge. It's not so much a lack of wanting. And, and bringing, bringing this back again to, to the 4R Alliance, I think that's the reason why things like the Nutrient Stewardship Field Day are so important. Whenever we're able to get policymakers on the farm and show them some of the realities of what our members face every day, opens their eyes and maybe whenever they're thinking about you know, either new law, new regulation, guidance, policy, whatever it might be, it's it informs their thinking to the point where they start to maybe see it a little bit more from the perspective of the the man or woman in the field and not necessarily the person in the office with a pencil reviewing the plan. Yeah, and on the, you know, there's some of the uh, more like state level things and some of the, and there's also a lot of federal things that are happening right now as well. Uh, you had mentioned the SEC climate and legislate, and there's some legislation with that that's uh, of importance. But uh, if you could just give an update on sure. what's going on federally. Yeah, sure. I mean, back in uh, back in the early part of September, we had submitted comment, and these these were these were going throughout the summer. But uh, the the Securities and Exchange Commission has promulgated a draft proposed regulation that would basically require all of its registrants to report on the climate impact of every entity within their value chain of their corporation. Well, that chain eventually is going to lead back to the farm because virtually everything that becomes a component part of a product or a finished product ultimately starts out on the farm. So we're trying to make, make clear both to Congress and to the SEC that most of our members are small fam, smaller family farms and are in no way situated to do the type of tracking, reporting, and then compilation and submission of data that would be required to meet this requirement. And so in testimony, I believe a week or, a week or two weeks ago, the chairman of the SEC under questioning by the Senate committee stated that there's no intent to touch farms in any of this. Well, then, then we come to the, uh, the legislation that you mentioned that would, you know, prevent the SEC from enforcing the, any type of climate disclosure rule against farmers. And also, too, make that explicit if they are to go forward with this regulatory package because they always stress, you know, it's just a proposal. Yeah, well, okay. 
But it's just a proposal. You know, it's out for comment right now. We're taking input. So we are, you know, we certainly would urge the SEC to, and the Congress to take this input seriously, understand the negative impact that will have on both, not only the individual farm, but also on many farming communities. Because the likelihood is that if a rule like this is put in place, small farmers are not, are not gonna be able to comply. And so therefore, they're either gonna to have to go out of business or they're going to have to join in with a larger entity in some way, whether it's through an acquisition or a merger, but you're going to see more and more consolidation within the agricultural economy because you're going to need to have the scale of resources necessary to be able to do the reporting that you would need to under a regime like the SEC's climate proposed climate rule. Uh, any updates with uh, WOTUS too as we're kind of approaching the uh, the court case here? No, at the same same time we continue to keep the keep the pressure up on that and continue to to promulgate the message that uh, you know navigable waters were included in the Clean Water Act for for a reason. The, and that's it's we have robust protections available at the state level and at the local level for lands that are not covered under federal regulation under the the water the waters of the US or the navigable waters rule as we had uh, more properly called it as as what it should be but again you know going back to going back to the issue of you know what makes sense because if the original WOTUS rule were to be in effect, it would mean that almost every piece of land that gets wet, which means <laughs> almost every piece of land, would be under federal jurisdiction in some way. And that is not the result that was intended uh, but whenever, the, uh, whenever the original regime was put in place. Yeah, and I know that's a uh, that's a big issue for a lot of people, and you know you always see the example of like a puddle in a field being yes. uh, navigable, which is obviously not true. Mm -hmm. the, so migra the migratory the migratory bird rule, where if you, if you had birds flying from state to state and they stopped at a puddle of water, <laughs> you flew from Pennsylvania to Ohio and stopped there. Therefore, that's that gives the EPA jurisdiction to to. Regulate that land. We don't believe that's the case, and we don't believe that was the intent of the of the legislation. Yeah, and I mean that's a that's a big issue and something that we'll definitely be keeping an eye on down the road with the uh, with the big court case on that. Yes. Uh, Sackett versus EPA, which I believe is I believe October third is supposed to be heard by the Supreme Court. So, you know, we had we had a very good decision uh, last last uh, term in West Virginia versus EPA. Regarding the uh, regarding the EPA's ability to regulate carbon dioxide as a pollutant, um, you're very very happy to see some some sanity and some fealty to the rule of law and the intent and the legislative intent behind that law that be respected by the court. One of the other big things right now is the potential regulation on things like uh, atrazine and dicamba. Grant, where are we at on uh, those things? Well, I mean, we've got we've got. Right now, a couple of uh, couple of uh, decisions out for review on on the regulatory review with the use of atrazine and dicamba, which are herbicides, and and um, both of those taking a look at the science and and the way that these, these decisions have been made in the past. The EPA has apparently departed from the science that they had used to inform their decision making whenever they renewed the uses of these, these chemicals previously. And so what we're urging the Congress to do is in its oversight role, 
take a look at this and make sure that the, the science that they're going by is the best science and is, is not, uh, not influenced by any other factor other than what is best you know, both you know, for public health and safety, but also for the ability of our farmers to be able to do their jobs. I know we touched on a lot of different things. Is there anything uh, in particular that you wanted to mention that we maybe hadn't talked about or anything you want to plug? You can follow me on Twitter to get real-time updates at pfbregaffairs.com, just at pfbregaffairs. And again, you know, from, from events that we participate in to work group meetings, uh, other regulatory news and information from within state and federal departments, follow that along the way and it will be a good source of knowing where we are both physically on a daily basis and also where we are policy-wise and the arguments that we're making in favor of what our members have determined is in the best interest of our organization. Well, we appreciate you taking the time, Grant, and as always, thank you for the hard work that you put in for farmers. Well, thanks, Will. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode of Farm Focus, please subscribe. More episodes are on the way, and all of our past episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on Podbean at pfbcast.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.